0: it was really important to share these practices and then to also share inspirations of how we could take what we learned or what we were currently working on within ourselves into our community as another way of healing. I think some of the, the best ways to also teach and to share are not necessarily to tell, right? Is to show and to be compassionate and to hold space for others. And I think that that's going to be a huge healing for the world if we can all do that within our communities.
1: You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast, knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Maddo Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. This episode is a conversation with Tracy Stanley, author of Radiant Rest, Yoga Nidra for Deep Relaxation and Awakened Clarity, and The Luminous Self, Sacred Yoga Practices and Rituals to Remember Who You Are. Let's begin. Tracy, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much
0: for having me. Happy to be here.
1: I'd love to hear what right now in this moment of your life is feeling really alive or vibrant?
0: Mm, I love that question. And what I would say is I'm really diving in even deeper to cultivate a relationship with nature that is much more reciprocal than perhaps what I have experienced in the past.
1: And what do you mean by reciprocal? Which direction do you think it was going in the past that you want to balance out?
0: Well, I think a lot of times the relationship with nature was about being in nature and feeling better by being in nature. And, you know, slowly I started to understand this idea of offering my gratitude to nature and honoring the ancestors of the land. And this has been going on for years. But as I'm deepening my studies, I'm currently in a ecotherapy certification program. I'm also learning about other ways to be even more reciprocal and have a relationship that is a giving and a receiving. That is more balanced because I think that we're already have seen the results of what happens in an extractive culture with nature and the results of that are pretty scary.
1: Can you give me some examples?
0: Yeah, I think for me right now, what, where I'm at with it is this deep listening is that if we listen to nature and to all of the other beings, they will tell us what they need. Right. As opposed to us being in this place of human dominance, where we think we know what they need. So that's, that's where I'm at right now.
1: I think we can all use that quality of listening in so many different areas of our life, you know, in relationship with other humans too. I don't know about you, but I know I have a tendency to always think that I know what's going on instead of, I have to remind myself to, ask and to, even when I'm not asking to deliberately put myself in the space of not needing to know, but just listening. Deep
0: listening and restful listening, I would say has been such a game changer for me. Several years ago, I learned a practice from a dear friend that she had learned from a Lakota elder named Carol Ironrope Herrera. And that practice was kind of being in this place of deep listening and then asking yourself the question, what did I see? What did I hear? What did I learn? And I did that practice every day for several years. And especially when there was conflict in relationship, instead of kind of leaning in and trying to get my way or my point across, it was kind of like, okay, let me lean back And let me ask myself these questions and maybe there's something else that comes forward. So I definitely agree with you about that being a portal to to healing relationships and having more balanced and compassionate relationships also. And I think also the relationship with ourselves, right? Because we have to remember that we are nature, and nature is us, and it is our separation from this knowing that we are nature that I think causes so many problems and so much suffering for us.
1: And these are themes that are woven throughout your new book, The Luminous Self. There is the this overarching remembrance of the interconnectedness of our relationship to self, our relationship to community, and then our relationship to all that is. Would you say that that's part of your intent with the book? That's
0: a beautiful summary. I love that. I think I'm going to have to write it down myself. Yes, I I agree.
1: (laughs) How did your decision to write this book come about? Was there something specific that sparked you to write it, or did it happen more organically?
0: You know, originally this book was the first book proposal that I created prior to Radiant Rest. And the inspiration at that time was that I wanted to create a toolkit that really held all of the practices that had helped me over the years, right? All the practices that I knew were very profound, all the practices that felt like they were portals into deeper knowing, deeper understanding, deeper remembrance. And I saw that there was this disconnection within myself and also with people that I work with of remembering who we really are. It was like this kind of eternal question. So that was the first impetus for the book. But what I realized after, because Radiant Rest kind of came in right when I was sending that book proposal out, the request to write Radiant Rest and I was resistant at first because I was like, no, I'm writing this other <laughs> this other book. But I needed to write Radiant Rest. And I also feel like the space of everything that came forward from the pandemic was even more information for me to understand how far away from remembering who we are we really are. And at the same time, I think for me personally, because I was holding space for myself and others who are experiencing grief that I dove into a much deeper well of my own vulnerability, which allowed me to share some of the personal stories that I share in the book that helped to create a foundation of understanding around the philosophies that I had not planned on doing prior. So all in the right timing, I learned so much. And then I was able to add that what I learned to this version of the book. Yeah,
1: It sounds like writing Radiant Rest first allowed the material in this book to sort of incubate longer and come out in a more mature form. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. So I think the vulnerability piece was there and also the courage to share some of the practices that I might have been more reticent to share before. So there are several practices around impermanence and around death in this book. And what I realized during the pandemic is that we are so woefully unprepared to talk about these subjects, to contemplate these subjects, but that when we are in the practices of them, it shifts our relationship. You know, I, I do use a quote in the book from one of my teachers, Gary Craftsau, where he says that yoga is the practice of preparing to die gracefully. And so that is a, has always been an inspiration for me ever since I first heard that, ever since I first received my first death practice. But it's not something that I would have shared widely because it it felt like, oh, people aren't ready for that. People always freak out when I tell them I do a, a eulogy every birthday right? But I think the pandemic proved that we need more rites of passage. We need more rituals around acknowledging this reality.
1: Yeah. I did notice in the book that many of the practices are very deep and might require some resiliency and some resources, like emotional resources to dive into. And one of the things I'm curious about is what are the specific practices that you use when you do not have those resources, when you're feeling depleted?
0: Yeah. So yoga nidra is my go-to practice. Yoga nidra is a practice that I feel, depending on which yoga nidra practice you're doing, but it's a very grounding practice. It's a practice where you, where I feel as though I can release emotion I love the practice of shaking. And that's one of the practices that's in the book called Jibba Jabba that was taught to me by dear friend Rod Mose. And, you know, there are ways in which we need to learn to be able to support ourselves, which is why I really talk about in the book that I recommend if this is the first time diving into some of these practices, is to make sure that you have support, whether that's the support of a mentor a support of a teacher, a support of a therapist, or the support of your sangha. And, you know, when I learned these practices, there was no talk of support. There was no talk of, oh, maybe you might need to, you know, check in with someone. It was just kind of like, oh, go do the practice and we'll see you in 90 days when it's over. But what I know happened is that the sangha kind of became the support the people who were like-minded, that were doing the same practices that were, and, and that became kind of a cohort of not only support, but additional knowledge, right? Because we were sharing our experiences and that became its own uh, version also of a teaching, which I found to be really beautiful and supportive.
1: And horizontal. Yes, yes. Like you were talking about with the relationship with nature is like a horizontal relationship versus a vertical relationship. I really like that.
0: Yeah. And I, I honestly believe that those types of relationships, and I also think about it, it in a circular way, is that when we when we sit in circle and we're in a learning environment, that if I'm the one who's quote unquote leading. I always let everyone in the circle know that everyone in the circle, everyone in this space and the space itself are teachers, right? It's like the, the question that you ask and a lot of times people feel like, oh, this is a student, I'm asking a silly question. It's like that silly question that you think you're asking is a teaching for everyone, including me, right? So it's, it's this holding, I think, of the sacredness of community That is also something that I talk about in the book that I also feel needs to be strengthened. That's something else that I think that we also learned during the time of the biggest crisis that we've ever experienced as a global community is, or as a collective, is that the importance of community.
1: I noticed that I think it's each chapter has a section on community care, and I'd love to hear about any personal experiences that you have had that led you to understand the importance and led you to include this as a distinct section in each chapter?
0: Yeah. I mean, I've spent many years in a Sangha and many years in a Sangha that was based on hierarchy and noticed how that felt, right? To to feel like you didn't belong or to be the one who didn't finish the 40-day practice or to be the one who was asking the quote unquote silly question and how that person was maybe treated within the group. So that would be the first thing where I started to notice how I didn't want to operate and what kind of space I really wanted to hold. And then at the same time, I think that again, the pandemic just proved that this community being together is healing and In the Western culture, we're just so focused on hyper individualism and our own achievements that we forget everyone else. So for me, it was really important to share these practices and to share the philosophies and then to also share inspirations of how we could take what we learned or what we were currently working on within ourselves into our community as another way of healing, right? Because I think some of the the best ways to also teach and to share are not necessarily to tell right is to show and to be compassionate and to hold space for others and i think that that's going to be a huge healing for the world if we can all do that with in our communities
1: can you share an example from the book about a practice and how the reader is invited to take that into community care
0: yeah so one of the, the things that we work on in the chapter that is called You Are Not Your Personality is maybe a, a negative trait that we hold, something that has caused us discomfort, something that has continually caused us discomfort that we know we need to transform, right? And so this is not about something to shame yourself. It's really something to say, oh, I'm looking for an expansion, And in order for me to expand and transform, I need to release or soften a little bit of this. So one of the things that I say in that section of community care is strengthen the relationships that amplify the quality that you would like to embody. Notice which relationships you have that cause you to fall back into patterns of undesirable ways of being. Learn to create boundaries when needed, when you are changing and leaving behind old habits. Show, don't tell. Do your own work and others will notice. When you feel held in a community and appreciate people and family members for being understanding, flexible, and compassionate, let them know. Right. And Mm -hmm. so that's something that's super simple. Someone holds space for you in a moment, unexpected moment, and we don't have that reciprocal you know, because we're so caught up sometimes in whatever it is that's going on. And we need to, to be in relationship um, in a more honest, vulnerable, and authentic way, I think.
1: Such a good reminder too about deliberately crafting an environment that supports the growth that we want to see. I think we can really shoot ourselves in the foot if we have a a change that we want to make or a way that we are committed to growing, and then we don't craft an environment that supports that, including surrounding ourselves with the right people who support it, because people are so important to us that if we choose to spend time with people who are tearing us down or even just modeling the behavior that we're trying to leave behind, it makes it so much harder.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is a, a different kind of example, but I remember not long ago, my husband was like, you know what, I'm going to just, dis- I'm deciding that I'm not going to eat any sugar. I'm not eating anything that has added sugar into it. I'm only going to be eating fruit. So can- and he knows that I love sweets, right? <laughs> so he's like, can you please not bring anything into the house that it, it will be tempting for me? Right. And if you do put it somewhere where I'm not going to see it. And it's like that kind of, that's really simple, right? But a lot of times we don't ask for what it is that we need. Yeah. And so how are people supposed to know that there's space that needs to be held for a something, you know, whether it's not eating sugar or it's, oh, I need time and space for my practice in the morning. I've decided that I'm going to do 15 minutes of meditation every morning. How can you hold space for that to happen and then have a conversation with your family members about this sacred time?
1: Before we started recording, you had commented on my office and I was talking about how great it was to be able to leave my house. I have a standalone building and I walk outside and that's a little little mini ritual in my day. In your book, you also talk about the intentional pause. And I'd love for you to share a little bit about your thoughts on what does that mean? What does it mean to take an intentional pause? How does it enrich our lives? Why was it so important to weave into the book?
0: Yeah, you know, to me, it's, it's like, if we can think about what happens, let's say when we read a book, I think we read a book a lot of times. The same way that the o- overculture wants us to go through life, which is like we speed through, we, we kind of, you know, maybe write a few notes and we want to get to the end because we want to get the, the thing out of it, whatever it is. And we don't pause. So I really wanted to add in these places where it kind of invited us to take a moment to pause reading and reflect. And I remember years and years ago when I read, I think it was The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle is that there were moments in the book where he asked you to pause and be present. And I felt that that was really powerful. And so I wanted to offer that as well, but to also offer a moment of reflection and inquiry in those moments, which is why there's an intentional pause. And I think if we can take that outside of our lives You know, you talked about this idea of this nourishment and being present, and I really feel like presence is also just so integral to our thriving. It's, we really need to be able to be, have time for presence. And what we learn in that presence, you know, in the spaciousness, whatever it is that unfolds in that space, is information that we would never have if we don't pause, If we don't pause, the only information that you are getting is whatever the overculture is feeding you at the moment, whatever you're scrolling with, whatever the outside environment has for you. And we're constantly focused on the external. And all that feedback can be good and can be valuable, but we don't get the feedback. We don't get the internal information. And that's what happens when the moment you pause, the moment you close your eyes, you move from this brainwave state of, beta to moving into alpha and that changes something right and so before when we were talking we were both talking about how we have our creative spaces and our workspaces that are a distance away from the house right and that that we've built in this intentional pause into our life where there's the pause between being in the home And that transitional space between being in the office or being in the creative space, which we can really think about as a liminal space. It's an in-between. So that, that word liminal refers to, in the olden days, what was called a lemon, like a threshold piece of wood between one room and the next room. And so if we can think about this idea of Anytime, even if you don't have a space that you can walk to 200 feet away or two minutes away, what happens if you walk from one room into the next room and you use that space as an intentional pause, an intentional transition space, just see what happens.
1: It reminds me of meditation. It's like each time that you meditate, there's sort of the three parts to the meditation. And the two parts on either end are liminal. There's this transition phase of like, my attention is outwardly focused, and now I'm going to deliberately bring it in. And at first, I'm not in a state of meditation. At first, I'm in this transition. It's great if you can move through that quickly and drop right into meditation. Awesome. That's not always going to happen. And to be able to be in the in-between space and to appreciate that for what it is, I think is really supportive of a meditation practice, especially a long-term meditation practice, where maybe some days you don't drop into deep meditation. It's just not happening that day. And then my experience is it's sort of the same on the way back out, where you create the intention, I'm now going to end my meditation. I'm about to invite the outside world back in. And before I do that, I'm going to pause in that, in between space as well to integrate the experience I just had and prepare for moving into the more externally focused side.
0: Yeah. I, I'm grateful that you're talking about this in this way, because what I also feel is that the liminal space can be scary, right? It can feel uncomfortable because it's the nothingness. It's the void. It's the unknown. And it's not productive. And that is the literal one thing that the mainstream culture wants us to not be connected to, right? Because it's the uncertainty, it's the fear of missing out, it's the not knowing that propels us to move towards distraction. Because the distraction, at least, is something that we can grip onto, we can hold onto, we kind of, it's predictable in some ways. So, In our meditation practices and in our yoga nidra practices where we're moving in and out of these liminal spaces, there's a sweetness there that is waiting for us if we can settle in and maybe that's the only thing that we experience. Maybe we don't, like you said, fall into this state of meditation. Most of the time, I think when we're quote unquote meditating, we're not, in the state of meditation. <laughs> yeah, thank you for bringing bringing that in and weaving it into the understanding of meditation. That was beautiful.
1: What other ways do you build your life to support and scaffold moments of presence?
0: Oh, well, the easiest way I think to think about this is in the scheduling of things. Is that there is space. Like for instance this morning this was really funny. So I had scheduled space and time for my practice. And I wanted to go sit outside and lay down and do some yoga nidra outside and just do some writing. And when I came into my my office space, all of a sudden I heard this leaf blower and I realized, oh, the landscapers have come on a day that they normally don't come. And so how do I now shift this into a different kind of space? It wasn't what I expected, but how do I, how do I reclaim this space? And I decided to reclaim the space with time chanting. Right. And so I feel like in the scheduling of this idea, you know, I come from certainly a work background. I was a Hollywood film producer And it was seen as a badge of honor to have back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back meetings. So you would start with the breakfast meeting and you would have meetings all the way through lunch and even through dinner. And, you know, somebody looked at your appointment sheet, it would be like, oh, wow, look at all the meetings you have. You must be really important. So it's wonderful to be able to be in a space where I can tell the people that work with me, no, I'm not doing more than two meetings a day because I need to be able to have this space, that if I'm going to teach later that evening, or if I'm going to be doing anything, that I have space to be able to rest. And so I always have rest space, meditation space, some chanting space, and definitely walking outside in nature space during the day, even if it's only five minutes. And being able to know that you're moving away from this Western construct, that a yoga practice needs to be 60 minutes or 90 minutes to be valid. If we can do away with that, then we can start to weave these practices throughout the day and say, oh, I can spend seven minutes resting. I can spend five minutes with meditation. And then when I have another five minutes in the car while I'm waiting for blah, 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 I can take that time and do a pranayama practice. And it becomes a weaving and then life becomes the practice. And it's not compartmentalized into these little sections that once you get off your yoga mat, then you're no longer in the yoga. Yoga is always in the room and always in the house. And I mean yoga as in the vibration of yoga, not necessarily the physical practice of yoga.
1: Let's talk about the word ritual. The subtitle of your book is Sacred Yoga Practices and Rituals to Remember Who You Are and in the yoga world, we talk a lot about practice. We talk a lot about sadhana. Maybe less often do we talk about rituals. So, what is your relationship to ritual? And why do you feel that rituals are so integral to practice?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I think the thing is, is that we are creating and doing rituals all the time, right? It's just a matter of how conscious. Or unconscious they are. So if you wake up, and this is not a judgment, but if you wake up in the morning and the first thing you do is you look at your phone and you start scrolling through Instagram or through your emails, you have a ritual. That is a ritual. And so for me, I'd like to be more conscious of the things that I do habitually. And I want the things that I do habitually to be life affirming. And when I do something intentionally, that is life-affirming, that is expanding, I consider that to be a ritual. A ritual is something that takes us from one state of being or one place of being to another place. It literally is a, a, a practice that brings us through liminal space to transform in some way.
1: What are some of your favorite rituals? Well,
0: some of my favorite rituals are, first of all, I consider practice a ritual. That's the first thing. And I do think that in the westernization of yoga, it became a practice because it sounded like something that was more, I don't know, safe. But we are doing practices and and rituals, right? It's like if if you're chanting, and lighting incense and a candle and sitting at your meditation cushion, that is a ritual, right? If you're doing a fire ceremony, that is a ritual. It's an external ritual. The practices that we do in Tantra are internal rituals. When you are visualizing yourself walking to the temple and hearing the Om and going into the altar of the heart and doing these practices, those are internal rituals. So I think that we've kind of taken a little bit of the sacredness out of the yoga practice. We've taken it away from its original roots, right? So instead we get onto the yoga mat and we're doing a practice that feels like an exercise as opposed to this idea of consecrating the body as a sacred temple, which is what a lot of these practices were meant to do, is to remind us that our body is a temple and to honor it as a sacred temple. So when you ask about rituals, I love to chant, first of all. And anytime that I practice yoga nidra, I begin with a chant to the goddess. I begin by creating a yoga nidra nest that is inviting to not only me to rest, but to the goddess to take her seat with me and to hold the space of me resting and being supported. And when I think about my practice and when I do my practice, I try to offer this quality of devotion in my practice. And I remember the origins of Yoganidra that come from the Mahanirvana Tantra that talk about this idea of consecrating the body as a divine temple. So it's not just, oh, I have this extractive relationship with my practice where I'm trying to get something from it. There's an honoring, right, of the quality of the feminine aspect of nurturing, of holding, of supporting. There's an honoring of the teacher who taught the teacher who taught my teacher to teach these practices. So there's so many different things that constitute this idea of a ritual and how we think about what it is that we're doing as opposed to just plopping down a yoga mat and a pillow and lying down.
1: It sounds like the practice that is a sacred routine is a ritual. Am I getting that right?
0: I think that a ritual is anything that you do with intention, with devotion, with sacredness, anything that is life-affirming to me Is a ritual. I think that the practices, if you're asking about in the book, I think the practices are practices that were given to me. They were taught to me as practices. Like, here's this practice that you can do that is a timeline practice to trace back this idea of vichara, right? Um, But any of those practices can become rituals.
1: One thing I noticed also. In relationship to these practices and turning them into rituals was your advice to teachers who are reading this book and hopefully using the practices and practicing them themselves was the advice to practice them for 60 to 90 days before sharing with their students. And I think this is really fascinating because I do think that there's this tendency to be extractive and to see, ooh, oh yeah, that sounds good, that looks good. I'm going to use that for my next class. And not always integrating a practice before we share it. I think that's that's probably one of the biggest stumbling blocks is just this maybe pressure or urge to keep offering new things and to keep things fresh and keep things interesting for your students without feeling the responsibility to embody and digest the practice first?
0: You know, it's um, what I would say is the overculture demands, that you be unique in your offerings that you have many offerings that you have a niche that you you know have all these different tools that you can offer right and i don't think that that translates actually into being a yoga teacher or someone who shares yoga or facilitates yoga experiences is really about if you think about these ideas that come from unbroken lineages right not just oh, I learned something yesterday at a, in a two-hour workshop and I don't even know which lineage this comes from or where the teacher received these practices from, is this idea of transmission. And transmission is not just about learning something. It's about the energy of the practice being transmitted to you in a way that is energetically felt, that has a transformative effect. And the reason why it has a transformative effect is because you have embodied the wisdom of that practice, because you have done it over and over and over and over again. And not only do you know the practice, let's say by heart, all the steps, but you actually know the practice in a much deeper way. And that is something that cannot be replicated. That is not something that can be faked. And so the fact of the matter is, is that you could literally learn three techniques and you could practice those techniques for the next year, devote yourself to these practices. And then for the next year after that, only teach those three practices. And they would have such a level of transmission and depth because they were coming from a vibration of knowing that your students will not be hungry for a new practice. They're not going to be hungry for, oh, I'm so bored. She keeps teaching the same Prati Loma or the same Kriya. It's no, it, it's powerful and it's transforming each and every time that you do it because there's a transmission. There's not this idea of it's boring.
1: Yoga teachers often lack confidence or they describe that they don't have enough confidence and and that that's a major stumbling block for them and they try to fill that gap with more information more knowledge and they go really broad like i'm going to learn this and this and this and this and they forget to go deep or i guess they're they're just not conditioned or they haven't absorbed the importance of commitment and practice and repetition even though as far as i know i mean any quality yoga teacher training is going to emphasize that a good yoga teacher training is going to have at the very core of what they teach their teachers the importance of consistent practice and the confidence that that brings just completely naturally it is what you're looking for when you think you're looking for confidence, you think you're looking for charisma, you think you're looking for uniqueness. It's really this deep knowing of lived experience. I think you, you said it just a moment ago, it, it can't be faked. It will transform people. It will, people will trust you because you trust yourself and you trust the practice.
0: Your relationship with the practice is everything. If your relationship with the practice is minimized to I've memorized this or I have a piece of paper with the bullet points of the practice and I don't really know the practice in my body, in my energetic system, it won't have the same effect. It won't have the same effect. So there, yes, people can have experiences from, from those memorized practices, but if you really have been doing the practice it's a much different thing and i and i see that in my meditation teacher trainings i see that in my yoga nidra trainings because the container of that those trainings is that at the end there's a 40 day period of practice before you deliver your final meditation or your final yoga nidra right and i can i can feel the level of practice that has been happening for instance in the yoga nidra training for 6 months Until the point that I receive their practice and I lie down to do their practice. It's just as good as any practice that I would teach because they've been practicing. And you can feel the vibration of yoga nidra and the nurturing and the holding in the practice. I do think for me, I learned also from things that feel like they're not quite complete. You know, so I have attended yoga teacher trainings where... It felt like there was a fire hose of information. And when you have a system that's telling you, here's what you have to teach in order to be you know, accredited or something in some way, that there's so much information. People put, away, put aside so much time to receive this 200 or 300 or 500 hours that it feels like, how do I integrate all of the, this information? How do I keep studying all of this information. And so what I would say to anybody who's gone through a training is find those pieces of the training or those practices in the training that really resonated with you and take those and spend three months, six months, a year with those practices. I think that's one of the things that surprised me most about Radiant Rest is because I also made that same comment about practicing for 40 or 90 days. And I would have people who I didn't know emailing me and saying, "I I did this for forty days, and I I didn't want to stop. I have I've kept going, and now I'm at a year of doing this practice every day. And how that's changed not only their own practice, but their life and their teaching. And so, I highly recommend. I couldn't recommend it enough. Daily sadhana. Making a committed, devoted practice is is life-changing for any teacher. And I I would also say to anybody listening who feels like, oh, 30 days, that sounds crazy. I don't know if I could do that, is commit to seven. Commit first to seven days of doing one practice, the same practice every day for seven days. And just take a few minutes after each session of practicing to journal about the experience. And just notice what happens after the seventh day, how much deeper the practice might be for you. And it doesn't mean like, oh, I've had this mind blowing, you know, experience, but something is going to shift in seven days of doing the same practice every day. And then see if you can add another seven days and just keep adding seven days until you feel like, you know, it's become more of a ritual for you.
1: Page one of your book, Begins with a poem. Would you be willing to read that aloud to close this out?
0: Yes, I would. So Reclaiming Your Power is the name of this chapter, part one. The experience of being. A letting go of doing. A presence. Eyes seeing beyond the forms. Ears hearing the vibration of light every sense pulsing in and out, a dance of knowing and forgetting, of trusting and doubting, of grasping and releasing. Now just let me remember when I have forgotten. Beauty is transparent. I see truth in divine connection. Knowing is already here. I am whole and connected. I am supported within and without. Let every day be a remembrance, a reclaiming of truth.
1: Thank you for that. Thank you.
0: Thank you for allowing me to share that. Thank you for all you do. I appreciate being here.
1: This episode is part of a series with authors of recently published yoga books. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out the rest of the series by looking above or below this episode in your podcast player.